Welcome to Access Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, Boris Johnson faces his first takeover test and the White House's latest broadside against Amazon. But first, creating the perfect IPO. So in the world of startups, initial public offerings or IPOs are kind of akin to graduation, the moment when a company goes from being owned by a small number of venture capitalists to a much broader universe of mutual funds and hedge funds and moms and pops. It's also when early employees and investors are able to begin cashing out. So life goes on, but things are never quite the same. Understandably, those of us in the business press therefore hype these things endlessly, and the biggest headlines are often reserved for the so-called pop, the amount a company's shares go up after pricing the IPO. For example, when Beyond Meat went public earlier this year, it priced at $25 per share, but then the stock closed up 163%. Now that sounds great, but remember what it really means. Beyond Meat left all of that value, $2.4 billion, on the table. That's why some companies, like Spotify and Slack, have gone public through an alternative called direct listings, which create kind of more perfected pricing. The only trouble is that shares sold in direct listings are only from insiders, not from the company itself, so no money is added to corporate coffers. This issue of mispricing has caught the ire of Bill Gurley, the legendary Silicon Valley venture capitalist whose investments have included Uber, Stitch Fix, and Zillow. For example, after video conferencing company Zoom had a big post-IPO pop, he tweeted, quote, Imagine if a CFO or CEO gave away half a billion dollars or simply squandered it. How would that be viewed? This is similar, but it's institutionalized, and therefore everyone's numb to it. In 15 seconds, Bill and I will go deeper on the problems of IPO mispricing and possible solutions. But first, this. Silicon Valley Bank strives to provide banking services at your pace. Quick, nimble, and always looking ahead. And when you run into a speed bump, they'll have the insights and expert advice to help guide you through it. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. We are joined now by venture capitalist Bill Gurley, a general partner with Benchmark. If mispricing of IPOs is this fundamental issue where companies leave tons of money on the table, is the solution to go back to what we, for example, saw Google do you know, over a decade ago, which was a so-called Dutch auction, where you kind of match the prices of buyers and sellers going into it? It's a great point. And the process I've been championing is the one that Spotify and Slack have used, and now iHeartMedia, which is called a direct listing. And if you understood the way a traditional IPO is allocated, it is completely and utterly, especially to anyone in Silicon Valley, tautological that they would end up mispriced because it is mundane and kind of unscientific a process as you could possibly have. The thing about Google and Spotify and Slack, of course, is that they are all relatively household names. Certainly Spotify and Google were, and Slack, kind of almost anybody kind of in a white-collar job uses it. Do you feel that direct listings can get extended to more kind of obscure, say, enterprise software companies, biotech companies, et cetera? Can it work for them? Absolutely. And I want to make a couple of points here. So first of all, there are numerous players in the old traditional system that have access to and are beneficiaries of these large, you know, half a billion dollar slugs of underpricing, and they get access to that. There's actually a professor at the University of Florida named Jay Ritter that studies the aggregate amount of kind of money that's been given away by these underpricings, and since 1980, it's 896 billion. So it's more than the market cap of Google has been just given away and transferred from Silicon Valley companies to someone else. So all those people that are beneficiaries of that 
don't want it to end. And so they've come up with a long list of arguments, this being one of them, that, oh, yeah, it'll work great for Slack and Spotify, but that won't work well for anyone else. First of all, you understand the fundamental difference, which is in the traditional IPO process, they handpick who they're going to give the stock to and intentionally ignore people that want to pay a higher price and cut them out of the process. But they do that for a reason, right? Because in theory, if you're the company, you're saying we want to be able to pick them because we want long-term holders, not folks who are going to flip it fast, people who believe in our missions. They basically want what you are, right? They want kind of a venture capitalist in the public market. I think that's the rhetoric. I think if you talk to any CEO that's gone through this process, they're told that. But then, you know, they get six months in, 12 months in, they look down at the cap chart and it's not the people. If that were true, if that agreement that you're talking about were true, perhaps they could enter into some type of lockup agreement with those people or some type of contractual guarantee, but there is none. If that's the trade you're making, shouldn't there be something that holds them accountable to that? Bill, one of the big differences between, say, what Google did and what Slack and Spotify have done is this issue of lockups or or immediate liquidity, right? When Google did their Dutch auction, it still looked kind of like a traditional IPO in terms of what people were able to sell the next day. Slack and Spotify, in theory, employees could completely cash out if if they were able to find buyers at a good price. Where do you come down on this? If, if you were creating your perfect listing, let's not even call it an IPO, but your perfect listing, should you know employees two, three, four, and five be able to sell everything on day two, or should they get locked up for a bit? We don't have a ton of data points to do statistical analysis, which I think is what you'd want to really answer that question. I will tell you that the in the case of both Slack and Spotify, the volatility is way below pick your handful of 20 other companies gone public at the same time. And part of what's happening when you kind of create as much liquidity as possible is I think the stock finds its true value faster. One of the problems with traditional IPOs, they've been underpricing them for so long that the venture capitals and founders don't want to sell into the IPO because they know it's a rigged price. It's interesting. These companies, the companies that you invest in, the kind of most VCs invest in, pride themselves on being disruptive and being innovative and doing things differently than, you know, the company five years ago, 10 years ago did. Why do you think most of those companies are still then using the traditional IPO process? We're seeing, I think, half a dozen IPOs this week, going to be more next week. None of them are direct listings. None of them are are some other sort of function. They're all the traditional IPOs that will have the potential mispricing problem. And look, that's why we're talking right now, right? <laughs> Just to, yeah, and, and not only my CEOs, but but in the past few months, I've been out talking to as many you know finance professors as I can, lawyers, former SEC people. You know, I'm I'm building a, a huge kind of network of people that have thought about this. And the number one answer that they have to that question, Dan, is that there's just remarkably asymmetric experience. So the bankers in the buy side are doing IPOs, you know, 50, 100 a year. And that founder, that CEO might do one in their lifetime, two tops. It's just a remarkable uh, amount of disinformation. And so I think for most founders and CEOs and CFOs, it's a lot like a big Southern wedding. It's this thing that's only going to happen once in your life. You get all these handlers and you do it the way they tell you to do it. In retrospect, you used to be on the board of Uber. I know, I know it's a big holding for you. If they could do it all over again, do you think Uber should have done a direct listing? 
in the case of Uber, they needed to raise capital. And the way the SEC has approved these direct listings, to, at least at the first version of them, they don't involve a capital raise. And so for Uber, it wasn't that big of a fit. But that's it, just asking the SEC, right? Spotify didn't really have a process for doing what it did. It went through the SEC process. Uber's big enough. It, it went through enough other stuff with the SEC, right? They could have tried to kind of create this so-called perfect listing, which is direct, good pricing, but also raise some cash. They could have. All the conversations I have, the SEC is not ready to do that yet. Bill Gurley, a partner with Benchmark Capital. Thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. With Silicon Valley Bank, you'll get a banking and financial services partner committed to seeing you through the ups, the downs, and the I'm way in over my head moments. There are also scalable solutions that fit each important stage of the startup journey. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is news that Boston-based private equity firm Advent International will pay around $5 billion to buy Cobham, a British defense and aerospace group best known for pioneering the technology that lets planes refuel in midair. Why it matters is that this announcement came less than 24 hours after Boris Johnson got Queen Elizabeth's blessing to become the UK's new prime minister. And Johnson comes in with full intention of fulfilling Brexit, deal or no deal. It's that last scenario that's caused some foreign investors to shy away from British deals, so it's good news for Johnson that Advent is buying in now. The only question really is if this is a vote of confidence by Advent or the firm believing that Johnson will be so desirous of the investment that he'll brush off likely worries about things like layoffs. And finally, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin yesterday took out his boss's long knives for Jeff Bezos when he said this during a CNBC interview. I think, as you know, if you look at Amazon, although there, you know, there are certain benefits to it, they've destroyed the retail industry across the United States. So Mnuchin was speaking in reference to the Justice Department's new antitrust investigation, the one we focused yesterday's show on, and obviously Mnuchin supports it. The Treasury Secretary also knows a little bit about destroying retailers because before he worked for Trump, he served on the board of Sears. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Chili Dog Day. And we'll be back on Monday with another Pro Rata Podcast.